Time for the 8th of April 2022 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast hosted by me, Jeffrey Bingham Mead, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, long known as the gateway to New England. As always, I'm glad that you could join us for today's show. There's no place quite like this one where you get to hear about some of the history and culture of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. Now, founded on July 18, 1640, Greenwich is one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities. Uh, We are going to be spending time exploring one of America's most notable and dynamic communities, a special place that we call home. Now, whether your roots go back nearly 400 years as mine do, or even 400 seconds or somewhere in between, well, you know, uh, we're glad to have you. Whether you're here to stay or you're just passing through, you're now a part of our history and we're very glad to have you. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, and Kevin M. J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Coming up on today's show. Today you'll hear another of Judge Frederick A. Hubbard's columns about a venerated antique farmstead in the heart of Round Hill. The Ezekiel Lockwood House was built in 1745, making it one of the town's oldest homes still standing in the 21st century. This great estate in Greenwich's backcountry was once owned by Isabel and Clarence Mott Holy, a realistic copy of the realistic Fattoria of northern Italy, the farmhouses of the Veneto region. Its name? Sunridge Farm, off Riversville Road. Imagine yourself venturing out by boat to Great Captain's Island off the Long Island Sound coast of Greenwich in late spring to spend the night. Well, that's what a lucky reporter for the Greenwich Graphic did in 1890, the locale of a historic lighthouse built in 1868 that still graces the island today. In Crimes and Misdemeanors in Greenwich history, as we continue to observe the 125th anniversary of the founding of the Greenwich Police Department, you'll learn about a riot that took place in Glenville in 1907, one in which officers were apparently attacked and arrests were made. Now, have you driven by the Thomas Lyon House that is off West Putnam Avenue at the state line with New York? That venerated home's restoration and preservation is a project of the Greenwich Preservation Trust, a project and an organization I urge you to support and to join. I've got a petition for you to sign to halt the possible destruction of historic houses on Church Street in the 4th Ward Historic District. I'll share news of public events at the Greenwich Historical Society and so much more as today's show unfolds. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these important messages. 
Mark your calendars for next Thursday, April 14, at 8.30 a.m. sharp. The Greenwich Chamber of Commerce invites the public for a discussion of 8-30G Zoning and Affordable Housing Land Use in Greenwich, Connecticut. This is a hybrid event via Zoom and in person at the Greenwich Water Club, 49 River Road in Cascob. Presenters include Katie DeLuca, of the Town Hall Planning and Zoning Office, as well as State Senator Ryan Fazio of the 36th District. Topics will include, why is there a current interest in 8-30G? What is it and when did it go into effect? What is in the plan of conservation and development about affordable housing? Pros and cons. What is the best way to proceed with the affordable housing plan? How your opinions can be heard. Why you should reach out with your questions and concerns. This is your chance to learn and participate in this one-hour hybrid and in-person webinar. You are welcome to attend in person for coffee or register for the virtual presentation. In-person space is limited. This presentation is being sponsored by the Greenwich Chamber's Government and Community Affairs Committee. Learn more and register at GreenwichChamber.com. This announcement was made possible by Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management. Support is made possible by an award winner of the Landscape Architecture Foundation, Greenwich-based Peter F. Alexander, Landscape Architect of Site Design Associates, believes that landscape design has the capacity to transform perceptions and ultimately inaugurate a deeper respect for the natural environment. Since 1979, Peter F. Alexander has been tireless in his commitment to excellence in project design, management, implementation, and personal service. Building upon a cornerstone of experience and trust, he believes that each landscaped project design expands the interpretation of design, craftsmanship, and sustainability. Peter F. Alexander is the founder of the Soundshore Environmental Information Institute. His notable projects include the Olympics Training Center at Lake Placid, New York, the Master Plan of the Calf Island Conservancy in Greenwich, Connecticut, numerous residential projects, and much more. Proudly collaborative in his approach, Peter F. Alexander's creations of immersive experiential landscape spaces cultivates a sense of community and connections that are second to none. Learn more about Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect at sitedesignassociates.com. Again, that's sitedesignassociates.com. You can also call 203-869-8632. Again, that's 203-869-8632. By all means, when you contact Peter F. Alexander, please be sure to mention that you heard about him through the Greenwich A Town for All Seasons show podcast with Jeffrey Bingham Mead. Thank you. We also welcome Long Island Sound Institute. The Long Island Sound Institute understands that a bright future relies on brilliant ideas and methods. The Institute aims to use modern planning and implementing new technology to conserve Long Island Sound. Looking forward to its stewardship in the area. To learn more about LISI, go on the web to www.lisi.com. 
S-I-S-T-U-D-Y dot info or call 475-897-5444. Again, that's 475-897-5444. And we are welcoming a new major supporter to the show. The Ambassador Museum, United States of America, is in the process of organizing and implementing a virtual Ambassador Museum based in Greenwich, Connecticut. It seeks to be a tribute to ambassadors, their families, experiences, and the millions of lives that have been affected by them. The Ambassador Museum, United States of America, is looking for records, photographs, and videos of ambassadors and their families, or people who have been associated with ambassadors in the past. Monetary donations are also welcome. Funding supports the Virtual Museum, which is receiving support from the University of Denver and the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies. Throughout the town of Greenwich's 20th century history, a number of ambassadors lived here, perhaps the most prominent being Ambassador Joseph Werner Reed. He grew up on historic Denbig Farm off Riversville Road in the backcountry and served as ambassador to Morocco and as chief of protocol of the United States, among other diplomatic assignments. On future shows, we're looking forward to featuring histories of those from Greenwich who served the nation in various ambassadorial roles. You can learn more at amusa.info. Again, that's amusa.info. You can call 203-347-4604. Again, that's 203-347-4604. Or you can write to Post Office Box 5002, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06831. Again, that post office box 5002, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06831. Well, thank you, Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Vice President of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, knowledgeable in the complexities of the financial markets with a passion for servicing clients and their financial needs. My friends, learn more at jeffreymatthews.com or call Kevin M.J. O'Connor at his Greenwich office, telephone 203-485-7595. Again, that's Kevin M.J. O'Connor, his Greenwich office at 203-485-7595. Last month in March 2022, I uh, mentioned that the Junior League of Greenwich, which was chartered in February 1959, has been an organization that has played uh, an incredibly uh, constructive role in establishing a wealth of projects and services for the people of Greenwich, Connecticut. Um, And one of those uh, projects was the research and publication of a book that I highly recommend. It is also found at the Greenwich Library and also at the Greenwich Historical Society's gift shop and maybe even your your favorite online book vendor, and that would be The Great Estates, Greenwich, Connecticut, 1880-1930. As a reminder, the, the book depicts what the late town historian William E. Finch called, quote, the flowering of Greenwich, the changing of a farming community, 
into a quiet, genteel town interested in community improvement and appreciation for its historic path. Now, the period 1880 to 1930 um, is considered by many to be the zenith of Greenwich's uh, nearly uh, 380, well, now 382 years this year, and it was the age when the word Greenwich became synonymous with millionaire. Um, this particular, uh, I wanted to read one more of the um, uh, estates that is covered in uh, this book. The reason why did I do so? Um, it's located up on uh, Riversville Road. Um, is because it recently sold, and um, I congratulate the the new owners owners of Sunridge Farm. It is off of um, Riversville Road, and I thought that I would um, uh, share the text of um, of this with you. It's a rather unusual um, house in my view. Um, and uh, as I uh, read this uh, uh, to you, you will understand why. At least I hope so. <laughs> All right. All right. Informality may be found among the Greenwich estates as evidenced by Sunridge Farm, once owned by Isabel and Clarence Mont Woolley. From 1864 to 1956, he lived. This farmhouse is a realistic copy of the rustic Fattoria of northern Italy, the farmhouses of the Veneto region. The site of this home affords long views to the south and west and provides a magnificent setting for the informal Italian villa-style house. Clarence Woolley purchased his first parcel of 49 acres in Greenwich during 1915. Further acreage was added in succeeding years until his property totaled approximately 222 acres uh, along Quaker Ridge in western Greenwich. The Woolies and their three children lived at Sunridge Farm until 1944. An imaginative and prominent industrialist, Clarence Woolley, was credited with developing and promoting one of the basic necessities of 20th century living, indoor heating. Well, how about that? <laughs> he founded the American Radiator Company, now American Standard, and served as its president and then as its chairman for many years. In addition, he was vice chairman of the War Trade Board during World War I, a Class C director of the New York Reserve Bank, a trustee of Columbia and St. Lawrence Universities, and a recipient of honors of LLDs from both institutions. In 1928, the Woolies extended, extensively remodeled and enlarged the original house on their property, entrusting the work to architect Henry E. Senf. Today, Sunridge Farm, with its mix of dressed fieldstone and stone coins and cement stucco, paved courts and barrel-tiled roof lines, evokes a pastoral feeling. The house is approached by a winding drive which passes through a pair of stone gateposts with wooden gates. Masses of pines, rhododendrons, azaleas, and laurels flank the drive as it leads to the slate-paved courtyard, which once featured a central fountain. The main house is L-shaped and consists of two main blocks, the bedroom wing to the left and the main living area to the right or north. Staff quarters extended farther to the north of the main living area. The facade of the house is constructed primarily of stone. Heavy timber trusses uh, support Lodovici barrel-tiled roofs and emphasize the informality of the house. The second-floor windows feature plank shutters and wrought-iron grills were designed for each of the first-floor windows in keeping with Italian tradition. 
The main entry loggia is paved in black and white marble squares and leads directly to the large sitting area with its double height feeling, ceiling excuse me, and corner walk-in fireplace. The formal dining room is to the right, overlooking the gardens, the reflecting pool, and the rest and the view to the west. A loggia sun porch leads from the sitting room into the formal parterred gardens. A centered balcony above the sun porch provides a similar view from the bedroom area on the second floor. The gardens, uh, the, the gardens extend axially from the sun porch with an antique wellhead as the focal point at the end of an arbor vitel. Bastrades and retaining walls define the sloping view to the west and lead to the reflecting pool and then to the rustic garden house, which was used for outdoor sunning. A second entrance to the house leads from the entry courtyard to the master bedroom suites. The two main bedrooms of the house are connected by a vaulted and groined loggia-style corridor and are paved with imported terracotta tile. These are two of the most stunning rooms in the house. As mentioned earlier, the bedroom wing added in 1928 was designed by Henry Senf. Clarence Woolley's bedroom at the far left measures approximately 20 by 30 feet and boasts impressive 12 by 12 inch rough-hewn oak beams taken from the Pickard Cigar Factory building, which once stood at the southern edge of the estate. The architect used the handsome beams to support a natural wood paneled ceiling. An antique carved wood fireplace in the Elizabethan style complements the room. A second major bedroom is adjacent but far more feminine, with its Venetian style wood panels and moldings. One would assume it to have been Isabel Woolley's room. The ceiling is detailed with delicate filigree moldings. Wood niches and doors are customized according to the architect's plans, and the fireplace has a black onyx surround. Both of these rooms, as well as others throughout the house, feature numerous bronze casement windows of European style and manufacture. Custom-designed recessed radiators were installed below each window. Several of the paneled doors in the bedrooms, as well as the other rooms, have floral paintings in the door panels. In addition, many of the windows were fitted with interior shutters, also bearing floral and ribbon motifs. In keeping with Woolley's commercial interests, several baths feature fine Art Deco tilework and fixtures from American Standard. One exceptional bathroom off a large bedroom on the second floor was designed in 1937, and many of the tiles hand-painted by Henry Varnum Poor. The design included wall tiles laid in a decorative manner and a tile floor custom-painted in a large floral motif, signed and dated by the artist. A corner sink designed in an inverted fluted cone shape incorporated the blue and green color schemes of the wall tiles in the floor. Soap dishes and accessory shelves were carefully integrated into the overall design. The grounds, designed in 1932 by Armand R. Tibbetts, made extensive use of native landscape material. 
large groups of Australian and Japanese black pines, clumps of birch and rhododendrons, azaleas, and dogwoods were used. Existing specimen trees were carefully saved where possible. Lawn areas were edged with these native materials, and formal gardens were maintained to scale. A green garden parallel to the Arbor Vitae Vitae Ali, was designed to be seen and entered from the bedroom wing. Lawn and floral borders led in stepped terraces to the reflecting pool. In addition to vineyards and tobacco painting plantings, vegetables were grown in a separate walled garden behind the servant's wing. A greenhouse and a pump house complemented the garden buildings adjacent to the main house. The requisite outbuildings for the Sunridge Farm Estate were located just north of the main house. A 10-car garage with staff quarters above was but a few hundred yards from the main house. Farther north still were the stables. Both Clarence Woolley and his son were avid polo players, and a portion of the estate grounds was maintained as polo fields. Additional houses for the staff were also built nearby, each of the outbuildings reflecting the main house in style and building materials. They were all built of stucco with matching tile roofs, creating a stylistic unity to the entire estate. After the Woolley family disposed of Sunridge Farm, portions of the property were sold. The Bruce Memorial Golf Course was built on some of the property. Both the garage complex and the staff houses became residences. The main house was divided into two separately owned properties, one of which comprises the former staff quarters and kitchen. The second building now contains most of the public rooms and family bedrooms. Nonetheless, architectural details of the house have been saved where possible, and the gardens remain magnificent. So again, my friends, The Great Estates, Greenwich, Connecticut, 1880-1930 book is available to borrow from the Greenwich Library System. You could purchase a copy uh, from the Greenwich Historical Society's gift store, or you could go to your favorite online book vendor. Now, you can learn more about the Junior League of Greenwich online at jlgreenwich.org. Its headquarters is at 231 East Putnam Avenue in Greenwich, located in the heart of the Putnam Hill National Historic District and directly across the street from Christchurch, Greenwich. If you want to learn more and get in touch with the Junior League of Greenwich, you can call 203-869-1979. That's 203-869-1979. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it is time for Crimes and Misdemeanors. That is the part of our show in which we pause to observe the now 125th anniversary of the founding of the Greenwich Police Department. To be honest, uh, our town is not the perfect uh, place that some people think it is, at least when it comes to crime um, and uh, good behavior. Uh, This story uh, comes from the Greenwich News, and it was featured in the April 5th, 1907 edition. This is about a riot that took place in Glenville, of all places, uh, and I'm going to to share this with you. Uh, Officers were attacked. It says, Glenville Poles celebrate holiday by starting riot. Hmm. Uh, I should tell you that uh, that in the um, 
or late 19th or the 20th century, we uh, we did uh, welcome uh, Polish immigrants to um, uh, to Greenwich. Many of their descendants still live with us today. This might be of uh, some interest to you. I don't know, but <laughs> here we go. Um, let's see. Reinforcements from Greenwich called by Constable Morrill arrived in time to break up mob and arrest four offenders. Officer Morrell never relinquished the prisoner over whom the trouble began. The story goes as follows. Police reinforcements were called from Greenwich to Glenville on last Monday to assist Officer Morrell in quelling a small-sized riot which threatened there. When Officer Morrell has to call for help, it is a pretty safe bet that the need is urgent and that is what the officers Merritt and Fulton thought when they were hastening the driver to get them over to the scene of the trouble. John Alawander, troublemaker and general badman of Glenville, was the cause of the fracas. The trouble started on Sunday night when David Broderick and his wife, on their way home from church, were roughly pushed off the sidewalk. Mr. Broderick, after taking his wife home, returned for his hat and encountered several um, of the people whom he had words. Alawander was among the crowd and picked up a stone with which he hit a bystander. Alawander is almost as famous as the stone thrower as David of the Old Testament and had broken the windows of nearly every house and store in the village. A warrant was sworn out for Alawander on Monday, and Officer Morell was sent over to make the arrest. The officer found Alawander in a saloon playing pool. The young fellow refused to be taken and uh, s- struck and kicked the officer. Several other, uh, it says, several other poles immediately joined in the kicking and pushing. John Long, formerly an officer, saw the rumpus and hurried to help Mr. Morell. Between the two, Alawander was held, although almost every means was used to take him from the officers. Monday was a holiday uh, with these foreigners, and the uh, Poles were, had come in from everywhere. Apparently, there was uh, they had gathered. Let's see, it's a little bit um, uh, faded there. Took part in a necessary descent for more officers. Um, it was a wise thing. It was done. When the reinforcements arrived, the crowd was bustling about and several ringleaders were agitating more violence. In addition to Alawander, the officers took John Mock, Thomas Alawander, Frank Cushito, and Frank Rembeck. They were brought before Judge Tierney in the borough court Tuesday morning. Many residents of Glenville filled the rear of the courtroom. All of the witnesses testified that the chief prisoner was a vicious, bad character and had put up a stiff fight against the officer. The other prisoners were charged with assault. The witnesses testified that these men were all concerned in and ringleaders in the trouble. John Alawander was given six months and a fine of $250. The others were sentenced to 30 days in jail and fines of $50 each. And again, this is from the Greenwich News, Friday, April 5th, 1907, about a riot that took place in Glenville. (laughs) 
You are listening to the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead. That's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, long known as the gateway to New England. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Peter F. Alexander, Landscape Architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum United States of America, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you. You're in for a pleasant surprise at Coffee for Good. Located in the 1856 Solomon Mead Italianate-styled stone mansion at 48 Maple Avenue, behind the Second Congregational Church, Coffee for Good has quickly emerged as one of Greenwich, Connecticut's top coffee houses. Its success is driven by a never-ending commitment to quality and inclusion. Coffee for Good shines as a unique nonprofit partnership between the Second Congregational Church and Abelis. It employs and trains people with disabilities through a self-sustaining platform so they can thrive in the community. The 1856 Solomon Mead House provides a 19th century style hip and unpretentious historical setting that evokes a setting filled with diverse people who are all inspired. Delightful staff, super friendly baristas, great coffee, pastries and more, Coffee for Good provides free Wi-Fi free parking, indoor and outdoor seating, with a relaxed local vibe that has become a popular study spot and destination for informal business meetings and gatherings. My friends, take it from me. The word about this gem has gotten around. Located in the historic 1856 Solomon Mead Italianate-styled stone mansion at 48 Maple Avenue, in Greenwich, behind the Second Congregational Church, all part of the Putnam Hill Historic District and listed on the National Register of Historic Places, Coffee for Good is open daily, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., except Sundays. You can learn more at coffeeforgood.org. Last week, I introduced you to one of the most prolific and gifted storytellers in Greenwich's history. His name, Judge Frederick Augustus Hubbard. Now, he was a lawyer and writer. His life spanned at the concluding years of the 19th century and the first third of the 20th century. Now, at one time, he used the pseudonym Ezekiel Lemondale when writing about what he called Cracker Barrel stuff, and his column, The Judge's Corner, was published in the Greenwich News. Now, he wrote a book, Other Days in Greenwich, that was published in 1913, as well as his book on the history of masonry in Greenwich. They stand authoritatively uh, with the town histories by Daniel Merritt Mead and Spencer Percival Mead that were, uh, in the case of uh, Spencer Mead, that was published in the early 20th century. Now, we're indebted to Frank Nicholson, who collected Judge Hubbard's Greenwich News articles, published them in compendium form as Greenwich History, the Judge's Corner 150 Vintage Newspaper Columns by Frederick A. Hubbard, selected, edited, and indexed by Frank Nicholson. 
That book, by the way, is available for borrowing purposes from the Greenwich Library. Uh, it's one of my favorites, and, be, uh, and perhaps it will become yours, too. Now, um, I mentioned last week, and I'll repeat this again because I think it's worth it. Um, Nicholson said this of, of Judge Hubbard, quote, One feels after reading him that here was Greenwich's Renaissance man. He was a traveler, sportsman, epicure, observer of the contemporary scene, arborist, botanist, critic, humorist, naturalist, an oracle, a profiler of people, a recorder of events, a describer of places, even a militant protester, and a sound recorder of various aspects of Greenwich history, unquote. That's that's quite a tall order there, I think you'll agree. Now, on today's show, you'll hear about, it's one of my favorite uh, farmsteads up in backcountry Greenwich, up in Round Hill, where actually I grew up. Uh, when I was born and raised here in town. And this house is the Ezekiel Lockwood House. It was built in 1745. Um, It is a designated landmark by the Greenwich Historical Society. The Ezekiel Lockwood House um, is one of the oldest existing antique homes um, to grace the town in the 21st century. It is located in the heart of, uh, of Round Hill. Um, he wrote about this book on his, or in his 44th column, and that was dated on May 23rd, 1929. Now, I wanted to mention that the headline on this um, uh, is, is a bit erroneous. It says, Sale of the John Fred Close Homestead at Round Hill Recalls Its History, built by Dr. Elisha Belcher in 1783 and occupied by physicians um, for a continuous period of 88 years. Uh, So um, I, too, thought that it was uh, built by uh, Dr. Elisha Belcher, but, um, of course, my good friends of the Greenwich Historical Society uh, found otherwise, um, that, again, it was built by Ezekiel Lockwood in 1745. So here is what um, Judge Hubbard had to, uh, to say about this house, and it goes as follows. What is commonly known as the John Fred Close Homestead at Round Hill was sold last week to Mrs. Jessie S. Foote of New York City. It had been owned for the past 20 years by the late Mrs. J. Fred Ackerman, and it was sold by her daughters, Mrs. Perch and Mrs. E.C. Wills. There are but few old houses in town where the form of the building, as originally constructed, has not been changed. Some of those which remain unchanged architecturally are Deerfields, built by Richard Mead in 1799, the the Captain Merritt House, south of the railroad station, Rose Cottage, owned by Mrs. Frank Seymour, the Holly House, and Augustus Mead House at at Cascab. In this class is the house at Round Hill, which has an unusually interesting history. It was built by Dr. Elisha Belcher in 1783. He was an unusual character among his farmer neighbors of that period. He was born in Lebanon, Connecticut in 1756. When the Revolutionary War broke out, he was a medical student. He entered the Continental Army as surgeon's mate. In 1780, he was promoted to the rank of surgeon and was stationed at Greenwich with the 9th Regiment, 4th Brigade. While still in the service in 1780, he was made a mason in Union Lodge in Stamford, which then had this town within its jurisdiction. In 1781, he married Lydia, the daughter of Horton Reynolds. 
1783, at the age of 27, he acquired the land upon which the house was built. Here he devoted himself to the practice of his profession, giving some attention to politics, for he was a member of the General Assembly, as representative from Greenwich in 1798, 1803, and 1811. When he built his home in 1783, he had had a glimpse of eastern New England, and he carried away with him an impression of house construction in that neighborhood. But in building, he failed to accurately represent the proportions and lines of an eastern homestead, although correct in some respects. It is, however, an attractive house, shaded by ancient elms, and doubtless within are fireplaces built for comfort and utility, for they were the only means of heating the house and cooking the food. Above the fireplaces are probably hand-carved mantles, and about the rooms is panelwork, fashioned by hand, when the carpenter's wage was a dollar a day and board. And in the corners of the rooms, the frames smoothed and painted white may protrude to match the summer, that supporting beam that crosses the ceiling. In those days... It was the custom of practicing physicians to take into the family young men as students. They were given clinical instruction at the bedside of the sick, as well as instruction in the proper textbooks. Although Dr. Belcher had eight children, he accepted as a student Bartow F. White, who married his daughter, Anne Augusta, and subsequently became the owner of the house. It is a remarkable fact that the house was occupied by two physicians— for a continuous period of 88 years, Dr. Belcher from 1783 to 1825, and Dr. White from 1825 to 1869. Dr. White had a very large practice covering much of the northern part of the town and extending to the towns of Northcastle and Bedford in Westchester County, New York. He was a member of the General Assembly as a representative from Greenwich in 1834. He was the much-beloved physician, and in the preceding generation, his name was occasionally bestowed on the infants of that period. The following remarks are taken from, quote, A History of Masonry in Greenwich, published by the Masonic Temple Corporation in 1926. The author says of one of the charter, mem charter members of the Acacia Lodge, AF and AM, quote, Dr. Barto F. White lived in Round Hill. He was a large contributor to the erection of the Episcopal Church, and it had been said that but for him it never would have been built. His monument in the nearby churchyard correctly describes the man who was born May 4, 1804, and died December 25, 1869. The affectionate father, the beloved physician, the devoted Christian." Unquote. Following Dr. White for a period of nine years, the old house was the home of Daniel Sniffen. He ran a, snow, a sawmill and was a house carpenter. A few of the residents of Greenwich recall him as a careful, methodical workman. After him, for nearly half a century, John Fred Close was the owner of the old house. His picture hangs in the probate office, where he was long the judge, and it hangs also in the director's room of the Greenwich Trust Company at 240 Greenwich Avenue, with which he was identified from its incorporation in 1890, 80, 1889. 
He was a town officer selected because he was not a politician craving office, but because he was a man in whom everyone could put their trust. The new owner is to be congratulated upon acquiring a homestead so thoroughly identified with the history of Greenwich. Signed, Frederick A. Hubbard. And again, this column is, uh, it's column number 44, and it was dated uh, May 23rd, 19, let's see, 1929, that's right. And you will find this in the Judge's Corner, 150 newspaper columns by Frederick A. Hubbard, selected, edited, and indexed by Frank Nicholson at the Greenwich Library. You probably know by now that one of my favorite local history books is Greenwich Before 2000. It was published as an updated revised edition of another favorite, Before and After 1776, The Comprehensive Chronology of the Town of Greenwich. Now, Greenwich Before 2000 goes through 1999. It was adopted as a project by the Greenwich Historical Society and made possible through the generous support and in honor of Russell S. Reynolds, Jr., a descendant of the founders of the town of Greenwich, whose many charitable bequests have advanced the preservation of Greenwich's history. Now, both books are available at the Greenwich Library, the Greenwich Historical Society's gift shop, or your your favorite online book vendor. Today, we're going to go back to the year 1828. Now, in addition to the text that I will be sharing with you from uh, from the book, um, I'm going to share a few comments of my own, and um, you know, in order to to give you a little bit more of a context of uh, of the history that is being portrayed. So, in 1828, on November. 27th, the Round Hill Methodist Episcopal Church dedicates its first edifice on the southwestern corner of John Street and Round Hill Road. Now, I have to tell you that the original frame building was formally dedicated on November 2nd, 1828, and in 1871, that edifice was moved across the street to its present site. Um, which is on the northern side of the intersection of John Street and Round Hill Road, and a narthex and a steeple were also added. Now, in March of 1828, Stephen Waring of Coscob uh, requests of Congressman David Plant of Stratford that a lighthouse be built on Great Captain's Island. Now, Uh, I wanted to add to this and say that a year later in 1829, the federal government purchased uh, three and a half acres on the island from Samuel Samuel Lyon before it was selected to be the site for a lighthouse. Now, completed in 1829, the 30-foot stone lighthouse was built by Charles H. Smith for the sum total of $3,455.17. It also had a five-room keeper's house. Now, in 1838, it was clear that the construction was of poor quality and the walls were cracking. However, the structure remained in use until the new tower was completed in 1868. The original light was composed of 10 lamps with reflectors, but it was upgraded to a fourth Fresno lens in 1858. Now, the Fresno lens refers to um, the name of a French physicist by the name of Augustin Jean Fresnel. Also in 1828, the Reverend Chauncey Wilcox was installed as the first minister of the North Greenwich Congregationalists 
um, the Reverend Chauncey Wilcox, um, in fact, became the pastor of the North Greenwich Congregational Church. That church is located at the corner of John Street and Riversville Road. Now, 20 years later, however, things uh, were about to change for the church and for Reverend Wilcox. Um, many of you know that I went to Hawaii starting in the 1995. One of the reasons that I went there was to conduct research on some of the missionaries um, who left Greenwich and went over to the Hawaiian Islands in the 19th century. While I was there, I found an enormous treasure trove of letters and journals that were exchanged between people here in Greenwich and those missionaries that went out into others. And so uh, one of them I wanted to quote here was a letter um, that said uh, of Reverend Wilcox, it said, quote, I am expecting to be dismissed from my pastoral charge. And he wrote that to his brother-in-law, a very, very famous man in Hawaii by the name of Amos Starr Cook. He was a missionary treat, uh, teacher from Hawaii um, who came from Danbury and went out to the islands. Um, and in 1846, um, I, uh, I, I found the, the reason uh, for Wilcox's dismissal in my research on the Greenwich missionaries. Um, I found that in the library of the Hawaiian Mission Children's Society in Honolulu. Now, the story goes as this, is that apparently Deacon Silas Hervey Mead was a main proponent of Wilcox's dismissal. Quote, he has been at it at least seven years. He has done everything he could to weaken my influence to talk against my preaching, Wilcox wrote to Cook. To, uh, at issue with the, uh, the two men's stances on the growing abolitionist movement about uh, slavery. Uh, a committee in the church apparently would not allow abolition lecturers into the the church, the blame was put on Wilcox. Quote, it is painful when a deacon of a church does so much to destroy the usefulness of his ministries, and I believe that Deacon S.H. Mead has done, unquote, uh, Wilcox wrote. Hmm. Well, both men vehemently opposed the evil of slavery in America, but they differed on how to eradicate it. Now, Deacon Silas Hervey Mead was an extremist, um, in abolitionist circles in Greenwich and such men fought to end slavery, denouncing Southerners and, and those in the North who did not embrace their aggressive measures. Reverend Wilcox was also arduously opposed to slavery. Quote, organized associations out of the slaveholding states is not the way to persuade the South to give up slavery, that slavery is a sin and that the South can and ought to rid itself themselves of this evil, I believe, and so does all that I hear say anything on the subject. The only question that divides us from those who are technically called abolitionists is the means to get rid of slavery, unquote, Wilcox wrote in 1842. Now, while impassioned abolitionists favored uh, uh, setting up societies in the, the North as platforms to denounce the Southern slaveholders. Reverend Wilcox and others felt that such societies should actually be set up in the South instead. Quote, all we have is that of moral mission. We must persuade them. We cannot drive them. In order to persuade them, we must so conduct as to have access to them. We must gain a hearing. We must be able to go among them and address them personally. If we can form associations against slavery in the slaveholding states, it might possibly do good, Wilcox wrote. Now, Wilcox's dismissal came in 1846, um, and a party of 70 to 80 well-wishers um, was held 
um, in uh, in Round Hill. It was, quote, a donation visit in old Puritan New England style, according to Reverend Wilcox. Reverend Wilcox and his family moved to Ridgefield, where he spent the remainder of his years teaching at a boys' school. Quote, it was one of the most painful events in my life to be separated from that people, referring to the people of North Greenwich, in a letter to Amos Star Cook in Hawaii, and that one was dated on August 5th, 1848. Quote, I loved them, my heart was bound up in their welfare, unquote, the Reverend Wilcox uh, wrote. Now, uh, Reverend Chauncey Wilcox uh, was age 55, and he died on January 31st, 1852. Um, he is buried in the cemetery at the North Greenwich Congregational Church. His headstone uh, is very prominent. It was restored in 1990 by his great-grandniece, um, a distant cousin of mine and good friend by the name of Elizabeth Wilcox Willis. Now, thanks to the missionaries who wisely preserved these and other letters, um, we were uh, able to gain portals into our history of Greenwich, um, and those do continue to be um, to be revealed. In September of 1828, um, uh, a relative of uh, Reverend Chauncey Wilcox, Josiah Wilcox, he erected a, um, a mill at Riversville to manufacture tinner's tools. Now, in 1858, carriage hardware was added. His sons carried on the business until 1904. Now, 10 years after um, this uh, mill was established, um, Josiah Wilcox built a splendid home that you can see from the road for himself and his family. It still stands today at 354 Riversville Road. Um, the refer well the the I'm sorry the the Josiah Wilcox House was built in 1838. It is listed on the National Register of Historic Places, and it stands today as one of Greenwich's finest examples of 19th century Greek Revival architecture. The columns, if you see it, it's very unmistakable. Years ago, I was good friends again with um, uh, with Elizabeth Wilcox Willis. Um, uh, she was the great granddaughter of um, of Josiah Wilcox. Uh, my understanding is that she grew up in that house, and um, she had me over one time and um, and told me that the house was used. There was a space, I believe, of, above the kitchen that was used um, to hide uh, runaway enslaved people as part of the Underground Railroad. <laughs> Mark your calendars, Monday, 25th of April, 2022. Why? Well, rock harpist and singer Erin Hill, who has roots here in Greenwich, Connecticut, returns to the cutting room in New York City, bringing her electric harp and unique brand of harp and vocal music, singing and playing the music of Kate Bush with her band. Night Scented Harp, the music of Kate Bush by Aaron Hill, features Aaron singing and playing songs from the albums The Kick Inside, Lionheart, Never Forever, The Dreaming, Hounds of Love, The Sensual World, Ariel, and more. Her band joins her with drums, percussion, harmony vocals, violin, cello, and pedal steel guitar. New York City's Daily News says, quote, Aaron Hill lights up the stage, unquote. Women Who Rock magazine says about Erin Hill, quote, This redhead delivers a much-needed dose of marvelous pop ditties with her simply beautiful and honest voice, witty lyrics, and excellent musicianship, unquote. The Cutting Room is located at 44 East 32nd Street in Manhattan. Learn more at 
thecuttingroomnyc.com. Doors open at 6.30 p.m. Advanced tickets $20 each. Tickets at the door $25. Learn more and purchase tickets at erinhill.com. That's spelled E-R-I-N-H-I-L-L dot com. You know, I was perusing some of the um, old newspapers, in this particular case, the, uh, the Greenwich Graphic, um, and I found a, a very interesting story that I would like to, to share with you. Um, it's about a, an unnamed reporter for the Greenwich Graphic um, who went out uh, for an evening to, or, uh, 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 on, on Great Captain's Island. Um, and uh, under the lighthouse. There is a lighthouse that is there. I'm sure that if you've been out on the water, you've probably uh, seen it. And, um, you know, one of the things that is so um, very much a part of our culture is a certain romance uh, about lighthouses and lighthouse keepers um, and uh, these uh, amazing structures that uh, serve such a very, very practical purpose. Um, and so I wanted to uh, spend a couple of moments, if I may, to um, to share this with you. The date of this is July, f- or, or excuse me, June 14, 1890. It was found in the Greenwich Graphic, and um, it's titled "A Night on Captain's Island Under the Lighthouse." A graphic representative's experience. He learns something about the light and the big foghorn. Information that may interest our readers. And the story goes as follows. The name Captain's Island is a familiar one to the people of this vicinity. While the bright white light, which has shone forth from the lighthouse there for 22 years, without once missing a night, is looked upon uh, as certain to be burning, as that the sun will rise and take its place. But although we know the island by name and have seen the light, many times when down about the water in the evening, Suppose we ask for information about how Uncle Sam manages the lighthouse and about the big foghorn. How many people are there in Greenwich who can answer the question or can tell us how many persons there are on the island and how they live and what sort of a place it is? Probably not more than one or two. And again, how few people of the many thousands who travel on the big palatial steamers which ply up and down the waters of the Sound in the night time between the cities above along the banks and New York can tell anything about all at all about the different lights that are past guiding stars to sailors that leave one to retire to rest secure in the confidence that the watery road that they are traveling is as clear to the pilot at night as by day, and that either in darkness or fog the light or the foghorn will remain him of approaching danger. The other evening, a graphic representative obtained a boat and rowed from Greenwich to Captain's Island Lighthouse. The night was a good one to obtain an insight of the working of the light. The dark clouds of a thunderstorm were rolling up from the northwest, And before the frail little boat covered the three miles from shore, the occupants were treated to a sample of what a gale can do on the sound. (laughs) Reaching the island, some little time was spent in finding a landing place, as the island is environed by rocks. This done, and 
our boat pulled up above the reach of the waves, the representative walked across a small patch of grass and reached the house. A young man, son of the head keeper, met him at the door and invited him to enter. It was with regret that he learned that the head keeper was away. His son, however, kindly furnished all the information that he could and, producing a map, pointed to the different lighthouses along the sound, together with the character of each light. They are as follows. The first light on the sound proper, going east, is Throg's Neck. White light. Next comes the stepping stones, quote-unquote, red light with fog bell. Sands Point. Next, red and white flashlight. Then, execution. Fixed white light and foghorn. Oyster Bay. Fixed white light, then Captain's Island. Fixed white light and foghorn. Stamford. Fixed red light. Lloyd's Neck. Fixed white light. Eaton's Neck. Fixed white light with foghorn. Norwalk. Red and white flash. Fairfield. Fixed white light and fog bell. Oldfield Point. Fixed white light. Fairweather. Fixed white light. Bridgeport Harbor. Fixed red light. Fixed white light and fog bell. Stratford. Fixed white light and fog bell. Stratford Shoal, white flash and fog trumpet. Southwest Ledge, white light and trumpet. New Haven, white light and weather signal. Faulkner's Island, white flashlight and fog whistle. Horton's Point, fix white light. Cornfield Point, white uh, light uh, vessel, fixed red light, bell and foghorn. Long Beach Bar, fixed red light. Cedar Island, fixed white light, and Lynn's Neck, fixed white light. In reply to a request to see the light, it was stated that the rules prohibit the entrance of visitors to the tower after the light was lighted. The young man then introduced the graphic representative to the assistant keeper, Mr. George Porter, who kindly took him up uh, to, the, to the whistle house and explained the machinery. The foghorn was placed here last July. It sounds a three-second blast every 27 seconds. It has two boilers and two Crosby automatic signals running, run by clockwork, and the fires are kept banked continual. On returning to the house, the visitor was introduced to Mr. Porter's family, and as the storm kept increasing, he accepted a cordial invitation to spend the night with them, and seated in the cozy family room. He listened to Mr. Porter's graphic description of lighthouse light, life and duties, while outside the storm of rain and wind beat against the house unceasingly, lending extra zest to his anecdotes. The present light was erected in 1868. It was built of granite, the top of the tower holding a lamp being of iron. The lamp is 36 inches high, and by 18 wide, and the light is of the fourth order can be seen 14 miles. It is lighted at sunset and extinguished at sunrise. During storms, birds are often killed by flying against the lantern. They are principally land birds driven by the storm, but sometimes a curfew or a small gull is found dead or injured. The island comprises about five acres, only two of which belong to the government. 
The force at the lighthouse consists of the head keeper and one assistant, one of whom is up all night attending to the light and watching for fogs. They live with their families in the house under the tower. Though isolated, they form a little community of themselves. A couple of cows, some fowls, and a small garden plot land a, lend a land-like appearance to their surroundings and form a connecting link with friends and the busy world around them. Their domestic supplies are obtained from Portchester. The government boat touches at the island at stated intervals, leaving, requi uh, leaving requirements for uh, operating the entire apparatus and also for inspection. The headkeeper has been here for 20 years and is growing old in the service, the assistant keeper for one year. Perhaps nothing will show more clearly the amount of traffic on the sound than the fact that 200 sail have been in sight of the lighthouse at one time, to say nothing of the numerous steamers continually passing back and forth, more during the night than the day. But one wreck is reported on this island, and that occurred 40 years ago. It was a large brig, and until a short time ago, its storm-worn ribs appeared at low tide, silent witness to, of the surrounding dangers. After many a tale of the sea and the lighthouse life from Mr. Porter and his plucky little wife, who has been with him through many of his dangers, the representative of the graphic retired to a cozy bedroom and passed the night. In the morning, the storm had cleared away, the sun was shining brightly, and the hearty breakfast with delicious clam fritters was awaiting him, and to which he did ample justice. Having visited the tower and seen the lamp, he bade his host and hostess goodbye and rode back to the shore with many pleasant thoughts of his night in a lighthouse. To those who may think the life of a lighthouse keeper is an easy one, it might be said that it is just, one, just the reverse, requiring continual care and watchfulness with much anxiety, with no cessation of labor. That, my friend, is a wonderful story about uh, lighthouse life um, in uh, the late 19th century in Greenwich. By the way, this segment was made possible by our good friends over at the Long Island Sound Institute. You are listening to the Greenwich and Town for All Seasons show podcast hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead. That's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, long known as the gateway to New England. The Greenwich and Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Peter F. Alexander, Landscape Architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum United States of America, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you. There's always something going on at the Greenwich Historical Society Bush Holly House Museum, Library, and Archives at GreenwichHistory.org. 
The Greenwich Historical Society is offering its second annual Fairy House workshop, April 19 through 20. Students will learn lore surrounding a fairy's home, from the Japanese Urashima Taro to the English Goblin Market to the Hudson Valley's own revolutionary Whip Van Winkle. As students learn this lore, they will build a fairy house for their home garden. Students will design and build their house out of a wide array of natural and recycled materials. What makes the best roof? How do I build a window? How many chairs does a fairy need? In the pursuit of these answers, students will get to test their creativity, ingenuity, and the laws of physics. Who knew building a fairy house could be so much fun. There will be four classes offered. Afternoon classes are for children aged 8 through 10 who can work independently. These classes are for children only, no parents. Morning classes are for children aged 6 to 8 with parents encouraged but not required to come and build with their young ones. On April 21st, the Shining a Light Lecture Series 2022 virtual event features the diseased ship, a cautionary tale about New England's twin plagues with Dr. Meadows Dibble. On August 1st, 1819, a majestic main-built ship docked at Boston's Long Wharf, completing a nearly year-long voyage to West Africa and the West Indies that only a few crew members were fortunate enough to survive. This dramatic story features a prominent Yankee sea captain, a tragedy on the high seas, a viral outbreak, a major political cover-up, and the conspiracy of silence that has lasted two centuries surrounding New England's involvement in the slave trade. Following these historical threads into the present day allows us to consider the ways in which our region's repressed history of complicity with the business of slavery relates to our current national conversations about race, privilege, identity, and access to the American dream. Meadow Dibble is Director of Community Engaged Research at the Permanent Commission on the Status of Racial, Indigenous, and Tribal Populations and Founding Director of Atlantic Black Box, a nonprofit devoted to researching and reckoning with New England's role in the slave trade and the economy of enslavement. Artful Arrangements, Tulips and Larkspur is scheduled for April 22nd, 10 a.m. to noon. Join us as we explore history and take floral inspiration from one of Constant McRae's masterful designed spring floral arrangements. In this masterclass, Trish O'Sullivan, former director at the New York Botanical Garden, will present principles and simple techniques through demonstration, discussion, and step-by-step hands-on instruction, along with tips on how to keep flowers looking fresh and long-lasting to ensure floral design success. Now, my friends, you can learn more and register for any of these on the web at greenwichhistory.org or call area code 203-869-6899. The Greenwich Historical Society works to preserve and interpret Greenwich history to strengthen the community's connection to our past, to each other, and to our future. You know, it's my pleasure to call to your attention a saltbox-style house, 
a New England house, of course, with the center chimney, um, on the right-hand side of West Putnam Avenue as you are entering from Portchester, New York. Maybe you're driving on the post road and you've seen it over on the right-hand side. Uh, it has been there for a very long time, and it is indeed a very old house. I would like to introduce you to my friends at the Greenwich Preservation Trust. Uh, they are the stewards of the Thomas Lyon House, uh, and I think that they are an organization that is worth joining and worth supporting, especially when it comes to the preserva preservation of the Thomas Lyon House. Now, you can go to GreenwichPreservationTrust.com uh, on the, uh, the World Wide Web, and you can see it there. Its mission is to educate and advocate for preservation of its historic and cultural resources through preservation uh, projects. The Greenwich Preservation Trust has taken on the uh, preservation and restoration of the Thomas Lyon House. So if you go to GreenwichPreservationTrust.com, you will see a, um, a an old black and white picture of it. On, um, it looks like it's on skids. Uh, there is a history about that house being moved from a different location to where it is now. Um, and you can read about that uh, on the website. If you click uh, Thomas Lyon House at the top menu, um, let me read this to you. It's uh, rather simple and uh, self-explanatory. The restoration and preservation of the Thomas Lyon House is one of Greenwich Preservation Trust's most pressing priorities. Threatened with demolition in 2007, members of the Greenwich Preservation Trust saved the house from the wrecking ball. Today, Greenwich Preservation Trust is planning uh, for the house to have a vibrant and safe future and continue to occupy a special place for those interested in preservation, architecture, genealogy, sociology, and local history. Um, now, uh, it mentions on the uh, website that the Byram Neighborhood Association formed the Thomas Lyon House Committee in 2006 um, uh, to ensure, as it says here, that the circa 1695 structure would not be demolished and investigate possible uh, uh, uses for it. Uh, and you can read the rest of, um, of it on the, um, on the website. One of the things that uh, my friends at the Greenwich Preservation Trust ask you to, uh, to do is to, uh, to please donate to, uh, to the good cause. And indeed, I encourage you wholeheartedly to do the same thing. There's a lot on the website about the history of the Thomas Lyon House. Um, it says, for example, that the Thomas Lyon House is the oldest unaltered colonial house in Greenwich, probably built circa 1795. It remains relatively unchanged and retains a colonial footprint established more than 300 years ago. Moved nearly intact in 1927 from its first site on the north side of the Boston Post Road, this classic salt box, salt box retains much of its original building material. And I have uh, been inside and outside that house on occasion. Um, it is a true gem. And, um, and, and what a great way to acknowledge that uh, when you are entering um, Greenwich, you are also entering New England. Uh, the salt box style houses are ubiquitous to uh, uh, to New England culture and to um, and to our history. So again, my friends, please uh, go to GreenwichPreservationTrust.com. You can find out about the Thomas Lyon House and the other uh, activities that uh, the organization is engaged in. You can also join and you can donate. And please, I encourage you to do so. Thank you. <laughs> Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for me to go. Thank you for tuning in to the 8th of April 2022 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast. 
Hosted by me, I'm Jeffrey Bingham Mead, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. Founded on July 18, 1640, Greenwich is one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities. Whether your roots go back 400 years as mine do, or much less, say 400 seconds, like I said at the beginning of the show, or somewhere in between, well, we, we welcome you with open arms. You're very much a part of our history. We're very, very glad to have you. I would like to, um, uh, uh, to mention that the Greenwich, a town for all seasons show podcast is made possible by Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, Kevin M. J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Now, before I go, I wanted to mention that you can always contact me by email at Greenwich a town for all seasons at gmail.com. You can learn more about the show and listen to past shows for free by going to Greenwich, a town for all seasons.blogspot.com. The show is also on Facebook uh, as am I. So look for Jeffrey Mead and send me a friend request. I'd love to hear from you. Our next show is scheduled for Friday, April 15, 2022. My friends, please enjoy your weekend and the coming week ahead. Bye-bye now.